is going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us once again for an episode of Going West. Today, we want to give extra thanks to Charlotte and Jessica, both whom recommended today's case. So thank you guys so much. Without you, we wouldn't have known about it. Absolutely. And also, if you're looking for more Going West episodes, head on over to our Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Going West Podcast. And you can find a ton of extra episodes. Almost 70. Yeah. And today's episode is one of those interesting ones where because this case was sorted, you know, I'm not trying to give too much away. Um, it was determined that this person killed other people. So it's always crazy when that happens, when you're like, wait, now, because this one is solved, these other ones are also solved. Right, some links have been made. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys, this is episode 215 of Going West. So let's get into it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. In June of 1996, a 22-year-old college lacrosse player had a casual night out with friends at a bar in suburban Philadelphia. But on her way home, she disappeared. Shortly after leaving the bar, her car was found running with the driver's side open on an interstate, painting a violent attack. After an important tip came in from a local woman, a concrete suspect emerged, and it turns out he had other victims. This is the story of Amy Willard. Ellen Willard was born on June 8, 1974, in Chester, Pennsylvania, to parents Gail and Paul Willard, alongside her older siblings Nancy and Tim. So the city of Chester is actually a suburb of Philadelphia, and it's just 20 minutes from the center of the city, and it's situated right on the Delaware River, and on the other side of this river is the state of New Jersey. 
During Amy's upbringing, her mother Gail worked hard as a nurse while her father Paul worked as a police officer. But at some point in Amy's childhood, her parents divorced and they maintained a pretty strained relationship, although her relationship with both parents was known to be strong. During this time, Amy moved with her mother Gail to Brookhaven, Pennsylvania, which is just a few minutes from Chester in the opposite direction of the river. So not far by any means, which was convenient since Amy was a teenager, so she didn't have to totally uproot her life. She attended the Academy of Notre Dame Dana Moore, which is a Catholic, independent, all-girls college prep school for 6th through 12th graders in Villanova, Pennsylvania, which is about 25 minutes from Brookhaven. And actually, her Aunt Nancy, a nun and her sister's namesake, taught there. Amy was a kind, quiet child who grew into a gifted athlete. While attending Notre Dame, she quickly rose to stardom in basketball, soccer, and lacrosse. In her senior year of high school, she led her school's soccer team to an inter-academic league title. And because of such victories, her basketball coach, Mary Beth McNichol, called Amy the best athlete I've ever coached. Which, that says a lot. Yeah. So that just kind of goes to show you what kind of future Amy could have in sports. She was just an extremely talented and passionate athlete. After graduating from high school in 1992, Amy settled on George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, which is located in the Washington, D.C. area, about a two and a half hour drive southwest through Baltimore from her hometown of Brookhaven. And there, of course, at no surprise, she was an accomplished member of both the women's soccer and lacrosse teams. Amy earned all-conference honors for her skill on the soccer team, all-American honors for her performance on the lacrosse team, and was ranked among the top 25 female lacrosse players in the entire United States. In the lacrosse season of her junior year, she even broke the all-time scoring record, and she was described as intense on the field, but off the field, she was just a joy to be around. Her lacrosse teammate, college roommate, and friend, Erin O'Neill, was Amy's high school rival, competing for Germantown Academy in Fort Washington, which is another suburb of Philadelphia. But after competing together on the George Mason lacrosse team, the two became close friends, and Erin actually described Amy as very happy-go-lucky and compassionate. Her friendships flourished as she grew close to her teammates, and she started dating her boyfriend, Alejandro. In the summer of 1996, Amy was getting ready to start her senior year of college. She headed home for the summer to stay with her mom and grandma at the yellow bungalow they shared on Greenwood Street in Brookhaven, which again was just a two and a half hour drive from her college. That summer, Amy was looking forward to catching up with all of her high school friends and spending time at her mom's beach house in Sea Isle City, New Jersey, about an hour and a half from Brookhaven, right on the coast of the Atlantic. So that would have been super fun. Amy had a fondness for children and was hoping to eventually coach high school sports. She had spent the beginning of her summer break taking an extra course at the Delaware County Community College, playing in a summer lacrosse league, and looking for a job. So despite the fun she was looking to have, she was also keeping very busy with other important things like school and work. On the evening of Wednesday, June 19th, 1996, less than two weeks after her 22nd birthday, Amy was planning on meeting up with some girlfriends from high school 
at a bar called Smokey Joe's in nearby Wayne, Pennsylvania. A little about this area, Wayne is a suburb that sits along what's called the Main Line, and that's a string of affluent uh, Philadelphia suburbs that run along the Pennsylvania railroad tracks, and it's one of the wealthiest areas in the country. Smokey Joe's was a simple suburban bar frequented by college students and was known for hosting comedians for various stand-up sets. The bar eventually shut down in 1999, so a few years later, but up until it did, it enjoyed a lively atmosphere and patronage among locals. The night of Wednesday, June 19th, 1996, began like any other. Amy and her friends from high school, who were also visiting for the summer, had made kind of a habit of meeting up every Wednesday night. Now, according to a bartender at Smokey Joe's, Wednesday was the bar's most popular night, and they had over 400 people come in on this particular evening, including Amy and her friends. Four of them uh, met up there, so Amy and three of her friends, and remember Amy having less than one beer, so she was not really drinking at all. Yeah, she was just kind of hanging out with her friends, chilling. Exactly, but they were there for about three hours, and then they all left at the same time between 1.30 and 1.40 a.m. on the morning of Thursday, June 20th, 1996. So between 23 and 33 minutes later at 2.03 a.m., Amy's car was found abandoned on the side of the road by off-duty paramedics. But this was no ordinary scene. Her keys were in the ignition, her car was running, the driver's side door was open, and the radio was on. The car was pulled over on the shoulder of an exit ramp on Interstate 476 near Springfield, Pennsylvania, just a 15-minute drive from her home in Brookhaven. Upon further inspection, they found a pool of quickly coagulating blood on the pavement beneath the driver's side door, along with blood splatters on the guardrail to the right of the car and a handprint on the exterior of the car. Also, the bumper of the car was indented as if, uh, as if Amy had been rear-ended. And that is an important thing to remember, so remember everybody, bumper of her car was indented. and. Even though paramedics didn't know this at the time, you know, this was so soon after Amy had left the bar, meaning something happened to her fast. Yeah, it almost like seems like as soon as she left the bar, some sort of incident happened with her and her car. Yes. So the off-duty paramedics called police right away. And as soon as they arrived, which was apparently over an hour later, police began scouring the area for clues because obviously this was a terrifying scene. Amy's mom, Gail, had been at her Sea Isle City home that evening, expecting Amy to join her the very next day, which is why Gail left Amy her blue 1995 Honda Civic to drive, which was the very car that was found on the side of the road. So this is not Amy's car, it's actually her mom's car. At 5.40 a.m. on Thursday, June 20th, 1996, Gail received a concerned call from a coworker, a fellow nurse at Riddle Memorial Hospital where Gail worked. When police began investigating the abandoned car, they ran the plates and the registration, and the car came up in Gail's name. A fellow nurse overheard her name come in on the police scanner, and after some investigation of her own, found the phone number to Gail's vacation home. So this was really just a stroke of luck here. Yeah, or else Gail wouldn't have known about this so early because this is only, 
you know, three-ish hours after, or even less, after police got to the scene. Exactly. So after finding out about this information, Gail raced home to Brookhaven, joining her estranged ex-husband and their two other children on the side of the road, just waiting for more news. So later that morning, farther down the exit ramp from where Amy's car had been discovered, investigators found the underwear and tennis shoes that she had been wearing the previous day. Curiously, it had rained overnight on the 20th, and these items were found dry, indicating that they had been brought back and disposed of after the car had already been found. So this guy is returning to the scene. Daylight brought hundreds of volunteers flooding to the area, along with cadaver dogs and helicopters, because it was very clear to police and the community that something very bad had happened to her and they needed to act as quickly as they possibly could. By 9 a.m., so, you know, seven hours after her car was found, volunteers were traipsing the nearby marshes and overgrowth for clues, but sadly nothing turned up. The ramp was closed to through traffic and surrounded with dozens of cop cars and hundreds of troopers and volunteers. But by 4 p.m. that day, a disturbing discovery was made in a garbage-strewn vacant lot in North Philadelphia at North 16th Street and West Indiana Avenue by four young boys who were playing tag. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medications that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, just visit Juvederm.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volix XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment, no maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volix XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, 
temporary scabs or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. It was Amy's naked body, and it had been discarded about 12 miles or 19 kilometers away from where her car was found. She had suffered three deadly blows to the head from an unknown assailant with an unknown object and died from blunt force trauma. The body was quickly confirmed to be 22-year-old Amy Willards from the Nike swoosh logo tattooed in purple on her ankle. And the autopsy revealed that she had died about five hours after she is thought to have been abducted and that she had also been sexually assaulted. So this person had her for about five hours. So what was this person doing with Amy for five whole hours? Yeah, and where? You know, because it wasn't in her car. Because it seems like she was attacked in her car and then taken away from that scene. So, of course, the medical examiner collected DNA evidence from the assault, just hoping that it would connect to her killer eventually. They also discovered a strange geometric pattern that almost looked like a diamond shaped, uh, or shape, uh, left behind on her abdomen that they couldn't explain immediately, but we will come back to this in a bit. Amy's family, as you can imagine, was absolutely destroyed by the loss of their youngest member, and Gail said it was worse than her worst nightmare. Aside from the handprint on the car, which they had no way to connect to the perpetrator, police had no leads to chase down. But there was one man who had shown up to the search efforts claiming to be an eyewitness, and with no other eyewitness accounts, he topped the list of potential suspects. Around noon, or about four hours before Amy's body was found, 23-year-old Andrew Kobach the son of a successful stockbroker who had dreams of becoming a firefighter, stopped by the crime scene where Amy's mom's car had been found, and he told police that he had driven by and seen her car there early that morning, but that he hadn't seen Amy. Police took down his name and his number to look into him further in case this could have turned into an important lead, but they found that Andrew had an interesting prior run-in with police. A few years before, he had been accused of impersonating an officer. He was reported by a civilian, someone he'd pulled over with a fake police badge, siren, and uniform. Which is so weird and sketchy, like why would you do that? And we've heard of this before in cases, and obviously, to me, it seems like that's just a way for a predator to become opportunistic, to say, hey, I'm I'm a, a person of authority, you need to do what I say, and then they gain control over a situation. Right, but in this situation, it's so weird because it doesn't seem, at least from our research, that anything happened. Like, he didn't do anything to this person, so it's almost like, are you just, like, trying to have fun in a weird way because you want to be a firefighter and maybe you also want to be a police officer? I mean, it makes no sense. Yeah, it's, it's pretty fucking weird. So, while the charges were eventually dropped, there was no doubt that he was now on the investigator's radar because of this. So police proposed that Andrew may have stopped by and offered his testimony just to keep tabs on their investigation. And obviously we've seen this before as well, such as the case of the Montana State Park serial killer, David Meyerhofer. Yeah, some killers are extremely invested in the search for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So with more digging into his past, they found that Andrew worked just five blocks from 16th and Indiana where Amy's body was found. This was obviously suspicious, but also given that they had no other suspects to speak of, the blame really shifted to Andrew. 
They obtained a search warrant for his home to dig for further evidence and found police paraphernalia such as handcuffs, a police-grade flashlight, and a catalog used to order police equipment. So this guy was like really wanted to be a police officer. Really into trying to be a police officer. Yeah. Why don't you just go sign up for the academy, yeah. dork? <laughs> yeah, seriously. So once the search was performed, he stopped cooperating altogether and hired a lawyer who protested his innocence. And Andrew just began denying that he had been on the ramp that night at all. So now he's just completely taking his whole story away from the night that Amy disappeared, you know, probably in hopes of them dropping him as a person of interest, even though to me that just makes him look so much worse if you're like, actually, that was a lie. Yeah, you already already said that you saw her car. Yeah, like why would, I don't know. But when the tire tracks behind Amy's vehicle believed to, you know, it was believed to belong to her abductor's car, they didn't match Andrew's car, and a DNA comparison also brought back no match. They officially cleared him of suspicion. So either he was lying for attention and just to be involved in something police-related, or he really did see her car early on in the morning, you know, before it was found, which it doesn't help the investigation anyway, so we can just kind of push this aside. Yeah. So a second witness came forward and claimed that he had also seen Amy's car on the ramp that night. This account was slightly more credible because it was coming from an off-duty Pennsylvania state trooper named Ryan Hutchinson. The 29-year-old officer claimed that he saw Amy's car on the shoulder and slowed down next to the Upper Providence Township police car that was parked behind her where a uniformed officer sat in the driver's seat. And by the way, Upper Providence Township is just a little ways outside of Philadelphia, about 30 minutes or so. So Ryan said that he stopped around 1.50 a.m., so 10 to 20 minutes after she left the bar and 13 minutes before her vehicle was found by the off-duty paramedics. And after Ryan stopped, he flashed his badge and checked to make sure that everything was okay. And when it was confirmed that the officer had it covered, he went on his way. Now, this is a bit complicated, though, because his superiors argue that They have on record that it was impossible for him to have been there at that time. Now, a local tow truck driver also claims that Ryan was on the scene of an accident 16 miles away just 10 minutes later, but Ryan maintains that he was there by Amy's car. He eventually resigned from the police force, but his recollection of that night never wavered. So this is really strange because he's so adamant that he saw what he saw But did he? Because this would be a pretty huge deal, you know, if this is true. And it would explain in the moment why Amy's car was pulled over. And then it would make you wonder if a police officer was involved. So this is an important story to prove or disprove. Right. But let's talk about what ended up happening with this story. Over a year after Amy's murder, in August of 1997, Ryan Hutchinson, who became a truck driver after retiring from the police force, or resigning from the police force, was tried for filing a false police report. And even under oath, he stuck to his original story. He said, quote, I know, and all my friends know, that I saw an Upper Providence police car on the ramp that night. He believes he's collateral damage for the police trying to cover up the fact that it took them 75 minutes to reach Amy's car after it had been reported abandoned on the side of the road. And his lawyer, Ari Moldovsky, stated, quote, 
Ryan's intentions was to be helpful. His sympathy has always been with the Willard family. Everybody is anxious to see a conviction and finally get some closure. A jury found Ryan guilty and sentenced him to five weekends in jail. Five weekends in jail? Yeah, plus 23 months probation, electronic home monitoring via an ankle monitor for the first 20 days following his release, and outpatient psychiatric treatment. I mean, that really just seems like pretty overkill in my opinion. I agree. It seems a little intense, especially because he's sticking to his story. So we will kind of come to realize that it doesn't seem like this story is actually true. But it's weird that he is so adamant that he saw this and that nobody is believing him. So they must have some sort of evidence regarding his logs that prove he wasn't. I mean, we know he was at an accident or the scene of an accident 10 minutes later and it was 16 miles away, but he could have like sped down the highway, you know? And this makes me also wonder if maybe he had some resentment towards the police forces because yeah. he did end up leaving the police force a short time later. That's true. And he was also ordered to pay back all the public funds that it was estimated to have cost the police force to investigate his claim. And due to all this, his parents had to sell their house to pay his lawyer and legal fees. So this was like a massive amount of trouble. Dang, and what's so weird to me is the fact that he continued to stick to his story regardless of all of this punishment that he went through. So that makes me feel like he really does think he saw this. Yeah, he could have taken a plea deal. So it's that's why it's weird to me. Yeah, but before Ryan was accused of perjury, a third eyewitness came forward another police officer, and this time belonging to the jurisdiction that Ryan claimed to have spoken with on the night that Amy was taken. Former Upper Providence police officer David Buggy asserted that he also drove by Amy's car and that an ambulance was parked behind her and that he spoke to EMTs. And remember, EMTs are the ones that found Amy's car. That's true. So the exact ambulance and EMTs David said that he had spoke with were questioned and said that they had not stopped there that night or been involved with the crime scene at all. Weird. Very strange. David Buggy resigned in a plea deal in which he would give up his position in exchange for not being penalized for lying to fellow police officers during a murder investigation. But it's still unclear why Ryan was sentenced for lying and David was not. But David asserted that he had been under a massive amount of stress at the time and that he was even being medicated for it. He said that he was confused and that he didn't complete his report about what he had seen that night until October of 1996, which was four months later. So by that point, he had forgotten the details and perjured himself by accident. Between these three false witnesses, there's a lot of coincidences and similarities at play because every suspect was somehow involved with police. Ryan lived around the corner from Amy, Amy's grandma and her mom, and David used to take the drunk drivers he arrested to the hospital where Amy's mom worked, but none of them knew what really happened to Amy. Looking to save on delivery? DashPass is your door to $0 delivery fees and more on DoorDash. 
And right now, using code GOINGWEST24, you can get 50% off up to $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass. Subject to change, terms apply. Daphne and I use DoorDash constantly to order lunch or dinner or even groceries. And that's why we love using our DashPass, because it's the most affordable way to get anything in your area delivered right to your door. I mean, come on. DashPass pays for itself in two orders on average, making delivery even more worth it. And that's why we use it so often. And it also gives you special access to exclusive promotions and member-only menu items, all for just $9.99 a month. Get more from delivery for less. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash. Use code GOINGWEST24 to get 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass. Subject to change, terms apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. With all three potential suspects out of the running, police were out of leads in the hunt for Amy's murderer. Then, after almost a year with no answers, a local 19-year-old named Patty Jordan came forward with a possible connection between something that had happened to her and what had happened to Amy. On May 29, 1997, so 11 months after Amy's murder, Patty had been leaving a nightclub called Egypt on Delaware Avenue in Philadelphia, and she had been rear-ended by a man following her too closely. Eerily similar. Yes. He motioned to her to pull over under the guise of, you know, exchanging information, but feeling uneasy on the road late at night and by herself, Patty, smart gal, kept driving despite his efforts to stop her. She also had the foresight to take down his license plate number and report it to police. So go Patty. I know this must have felt that like this must have felt pretty sketchy to her if she did that. And that's how this dickhead is getting away with manipulating the situation is he's rear ending people and then going, hey, let's exchange information. Then boom, abduction. Exactly. And we will get into that. Now, the Pennsylvania plates were registered to a man named Arthur Jerome Beaumar Jr., for the green 1993 Ford Escort that he had been driving. A quick search of his record revealed that Arthur was a paroled murderer from Nevada who had been sentenced to life after killing a man over a dispute about a parking spot. He served just 11 years of that sentence, and upon his release in 1990, 
He violated the terms of his parole and moved to Pennsylvania to be closer to his family. So first of all, again, very smart of Patty to listen to her instincts and not pull over. I think we can all take a tip from her there. And the fact that he did end up being a murderer and she was able to report this to police, specifically thinking of Amy's particular case, incredible. But also who knows what would have happened to Patty if she had pulled over, because this clearly was his way of getting her to stop her car, which is terrifying. But let's talk a little bit more about Arthur. So in 1978, Arthur Bomar was a 19-year-old janitor living in Reno, Nevada, when he shot a man to death in a Las Vegas parking lot after a fight. But while he was in his local jail, he was released on a $20,000 bond. Then the following year, in 1979, while awaiting trial for his murder charge, he was arrested for shooting an 18-year-old woman in the knee back in Reno. So while he was awaiting trial for a murder, he committed another assault. And what happened in this particular case is that Arthur walked into the home of Sherry Newman and her mother and shot Sherry point blank in her knee. Then in 1986, while already in prison serving the supposed life sentence that was commuted to just 11 years, he beat his girlfriend in a prison visiting room and was charged with assault. So it's like, this guy's already in prison and he's literally assaulting his girlfriend while s still in prison. Yeah, he's just an extremely violent individual. Yeah. And although there were witnesses, he initially claimed that he was innocent before taking a plea deal in exchange for an admission of guilt. Now, he fled to Pennsylvania illegally upon release, but the state of Nevada failed to extradite him and charge him. So he walked free without the supervision of a parole officer. In September of 1997, he pleaded guilty to separate burglary, theft, and gun charges unrelated to Amy's death that had culminated in three arrests between June and December of 1996. This man had slipped through the cracks of the justice system for so long, but his time was finally up. It's just frustrating, as we say in every case that's like this, that he did or he was able to slip through the cracks because had he not, multiple people would be alive today. Very true. On June 5th, 1997, Arthur was arrested yet again this time for unrelated criminal trespassing charges. And for whatever reason, he gave police the alias Peter Thomas Love. But after discovering that this man was Arthur, the same Arthur who had rear-ended Patty Jordan, police were eager to question him about the possible connection between him and Amy Willard. Coincidentally, Arthur had been pulled over at the intersection of 20th Street and Erie Avenue in Philadelphia, just eight blocks from where Amy's body was discovered, and only a few hours after she was found, proving that he was in the area. And at this time, he had been driving the same green Ford Escort that he was driving when he rear-ended Patty. But when questioned about the tire tracks behind Amy's car, he claimed there was no way to make a comparison because he had driven the Escort until March of 1997, at which time he had gotten a new car. So by the time they're questioning him, he no longer had that Ford Escort. Arthur added that he happened to have been at Smokey Joe's the night of Amy's disappearance, but that he had nothing to do with her death. But on July 10th, police interviewed his then girlfriend, Mary Rumor, who told them that Arthur had told her that he murdered Amy. 
The following day, police tracked down the Ford Escort that Arthur no longer drove, and it was found in a field next to a towing company. They removed the left front tire, which matched the tire tracks left behind Amy's Honda Civic, the oil pan from underneath the vehicle, which matched the geometric pattern burned onto Amy's abdomen, and the passenger's side door panel, which had brownish spots that tested positive for blood, which means he drove that car for almost a year with that blood just inside his vehicle. A comparison confirmed the blood found in Arthur's car was Amy's, and the male DNA found on Amy's body was Arthur's. Police surmised that he had bludgeoned Amy with a tire iron and, judging by the oil pan burns from the undercarriage of his car, run her over before discarding her body. So this is such a violent and senseless crime. And knowing what he had done to Patty, you know, uh, rear-ending her to get her to pull over, it made police believe that Arthur did the exact same thing to Amy, but Amy actually did pull over to fix the situation, especially since her back bumper was indented when police inspected it. So this essentially proved this theory. Yeah, I mean, again, this is exactly how he's able to trap these women. So when Arthur had been arrested on June 5th, he turned over a pair of keys to a 1993 Honda Civic that had been in his pocket. When police searched this vehicle, they found that the license plates had been from his Ford Escort. But the registration belonged to a woman named Maria Cabuenos, who had been missing since March. Maria Cabuenos was a 25-year-old woman who lived in a neighborhood in North Philadelphia. She disappeared early on a March morning while on her way to work as a laboratory technician at SmithKline Beecham, a pharmaceutical company that later became GlaxoSmithKline. Her route to work was on the same highway where Amy's car was pulled over, Interstate 476, and Maria's Honda also had scrapes and indents on the bumper, just like Amy and Patty's cars. Maria was from a large, loving family with 10 brothers and sisters, all of whom roamed the streets daily looking for her after she disappeared. So on top of Arthur having been driving a missing woman's missing car, bloodstains matching Maria's blood were found in that car, and a watch belonging to Maria was also found in Arthur's home. That sounds like a lot of evidence to me. So. Her tight-knit family were just devastated when less than a year after she went missing on January 1st, 1998, her skeletal remains were found in a wooded area in Tinicum Township, just outside of where Amy was from. Shortly after this discovery, dental records confirmed that the remains were Maria's. But get this, somehow, Arthur has yet to be convicted of her murder and continues to deny his involvement to this day. There's absolutely no way that this piece of shit was not involved. Yeah, I mean, he also denied involvement in Amy's case, so we know we can't trust this guy. He even, he even denied beating up his girlfriend in a prison waiting room when other people saw him. So yeah. this guy does not tell the truth. And he had Maria's keys and vehicle. Her blood was found in said vehicle and her watch was in his house. Like, I can't imagine how upset her family is by all this, especially considering it's been 25 years. Yeah, that family needs justice ASAP. Agreed. In Amy's short life, she was able to accomplish a great deal. Because of the technicalities which allowed Arthur to remain free and able to continue to commit these heinous crimes, 
The Victims of Trafficking and Violence Protection Act, better known as Amy's Law, was passed in 2000. The law encourages states to detain murderers, rapists, and child molesters in prison for longer periods of time and holds the state financially accountable if they fail to do so. The law also makes it easier to uphold sentencing and parole, even if an offender moves to another state. Amy's High School named their gymnasium after her, and her college started the Amy Willard Endowed Scholarship and hosts an annual Memorial Victims Rights 5K. U.S. Lacrosse created a national award in her honor, and there's a small roadside memorial to her on the exit ramp where her car was found. Every year at Thanksgiving, orchestrated by her mother, Gail, her family and friends host a Thanksgiving dinner and coat and toy drive for those less fortunate. And Jason Culler, one of the four boys who discovered Amy's body, volunteers with them too and still keeps in touch with Gail. That's so sweet. I have no words for that. I know. I have to show you. There's a few really sweet photos of them together at these Thanksgiving dinners, like smiling with their arms around each other. So it seems that they have kept in touch and maintained a positive relationship despite the tragedy that brought them together, which was Jason finding Amy. But they really do look like they have a nice time at these Thanksgiving dinners all together in Amy's honor. That's so amazing. So during Arthur's trial, his lawyer's defense was built around having been neglected as a child and having a low IQ. Yeah, we know, you're dumb as shit. So he had to be physically restrained multiple times throughout the trial, and his family members were also lashing out at reporters, screaming at them and hitting them. His mother at one point hitting a reporter with her cane. Which means they're on his side. I mean, it's... it's it seems to me that not only is he violent, but we know now where he gets his violence. Right. Like you're just hitting random reporters. And it gets worse. Then upon his sentencing, Arthur flipped off Gail Willard with both hands and said, fuck you, Miss Willard, and your two kids. I This guy is next level. I hate him. Horrible piece of shit. Like that is the mom of the young woman that you murdered yeah that is so messed up like i feel like in a lot of cases where um murderers maintain their innocence they're at least like look i'm sorry this happened to you but it wasn't me we've seen that a lot but to say to flip off her mom like you're a you're next level bad dude next level pos so on october 1st 1998 arthur was convicted of of the first degree murder of 22 year old amy willard as well as her rape aggravated assault, kidnapping, and abuse of a corpse. On December 4th, 1998, he was sentenced to death. However, he's remained on death row for the last 24 years. Dale Yeager, a criminal analyst, said of Arthur, quote, Let me tell you something. There are people that cannot be reformed, and no matter what you do, they will not change. And Arthur Bomar is one of those people. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West. Yes, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And on Friday, we'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into. I just can't believe how horrible Arthur is. Like, just, I mean, what can you expect from a murderer, right? But yeah. So sad that her family was treated that way, but I'm, I'm so glad that they do get together and do all of these things in Amy's honor. Her family seems truly amazing. 
And um, yeah, so thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. And oh God, I really hope Maria's family gets some justice. Yeah, I was about to say that. We really need to push for justice for Maria's family because that's absolutely insane that there's this amount of evidence and nothing has been done. And this guy's an asshole and he's a murderer and he clearly killed Maria, so charge the guy. Exactly. Well, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Remember, if you want more episodes of Going West, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash goingwestpodcast. Yes, thank you guys so much. We appreciate you so dearly, all of your comments on social media and your nice reviews on Apple Podcasts. We just love you guys. So thank you for being here and showing up every week with us. And um, yeah, if you're not following us, you should. If you want to see photos of this case and every other case, we're on Instagram at goingwestpodcast, Twitter at goingwestpod, and we're also on Facebook. All right, guys. So for everybody out there in the world, don't be a stranger. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.